even if you've won major success that can outweigh all the losses. And I think of that often as the way the venture capital fund runs. And really that's the best way to think about Vision Fund One. From our remote offices in New York and the UK, welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Great Sites podcast. This podcast offers conversations with our analysts to get their perspective and expertise on the global credit markets. If you're an investment professional that touches the wide universe of fixed income, you will want to give us a listen. We are living a surreal life right now, but our team of nearly 100 analysts continues to publish content to more than 15,000 readers across global credit markets. I'm Christopher Snow, the U.S. Head of Research, and I'm here with Mary Pollack, Senior TMT Analyst. Hi, Mary. Welcome. Hey, Chris. Happy to be here. Well, great. Today, we're going to talk about SoftBank. SoftBank is a company to pay attention to because it has big plays and big spaces. It's been alternatively called a hedge fund, a private equity company, uh, all the while sporting a more than 14 trillion yen market cap. Mary, can you talk to me about why you wanted to do this podcast? Absolutely. So in my conversations with my clients, with colleagues internally, and even with the press, I often had this repeating conversation, which was what I called explaining SoftBank, which was talking about the history of where we've been, how the group is structured today, and how to make sense of all the noise around the company. It's obviously involved in venture capital markets, in the telecoms markets, most recently in the options market. It touches all these different parts of financial services, and it's important to all of them. But what does all that mean to creditors? And you often need some background to make sense of that. So I thought the podcast was a good forum to sort of talk about some of that background. Great. Well, the company was in the news last month with the sale of chipmaker Arm to NVIDIA. How'd they do on that deal? And more broadly, how's the group fared over the last five years? I think that deal was a positive for SoftBank on balance. So for one reason, the primary reason being When it was entirely owned by SoftBank, it was unclear what the value was in ARM. They paid up a large premium when they acquired the company. And even with this up to $40 billion valuation, that's only on $1.9 billion of revenue and around $300 million of EBITDA. So it still is a really, really chunky valuation. But essentially, NVIDIA saying, yes, we see that value too, lends credence to Masasan's ability to make savvy investments. And that's important as SoftBank Group thinks about Vision Fund 2 and needs co-investors for that vehicle. And it's also important for its equity investors and its creditors as Masasan's strategy is really key to that story making sense. It also is one of the more recent developments in what has been a, a long history. I mean, so five years ago, SoftBank really was a telco. It owned 100% of SoftBank Corp, the Japanese telco. It owned 83% of Sprint and 32% of Alibaba. So it consolidated SoftBank Corp and Sprint. SoftBank Corp, that domestic telco, didn't have any of its own debt, and it actually guaranteed the bonds at the Holco, which is what we cover, the soft BK ticker. And that's where we were in 2016. And that was also the year that 2016, that SoftBank announced it was launching Division Fund 1. By the middle of 2017, it had around $100 billion of committed capital for that vehicle. That is mostly SoftBank Group itself and then Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. In 2018, it took a number of liability management exercises to prepare for the IPO of the domestic telco. So that essentially was the last step in moving to an entirely whole coast structure. So 
essentially all of the assets it owned, it would own less than 100% and move toward a holding company structure, which has been Masasan's aim. And changing the language in some of its existing bonds was key to being able to move forward with that. That IPO happened at the end of 2018. So in 2019, we actually had the investment period closed on the Vision Fund 1, 85% of that committed capital had been deployed. Masasan had spent, you know, the majority of $100 billion in about two years. We also had the WeWork fiasco, which was very important, I think, in the perception of SoftBank and the public markets. And then we started 2020, obviously, sort of getting pushed right into COVID-19 when SoftBank equity and bonds were really directly impacted by the sell-off. And it's interesting how the group reacted in that environment. So the first thing SoftBank did was announce a share buyback, which was not well-received. And then it announced this massive asset sale program with share buybacks and debt reduction. And that was warmly received and the equities performed and the bonds have performed well since then. It has also been buying back uh, its stock in size. The bond buybacks have been more limited thus far. And the arm deal was part of that asset sale commitment, along with obviously a sale of some of the T-Mobile stake, and they've also liquidated some of their Alibaba holdings. So that kind of takes you to where we are today. And you can see, you know, it used to be a telecom where we talked about leverage, and now it's a holding company where that is not even a useful metric for us as credit analysts looking at the name. Thanks, Mary. I mean, you spoke a bit about with with San has almost a unique ability to sort of set a valuation out in the marketplace. I'm sure it makes it difficult to think about how, what that asset coverage is within the portfolio. We're going to touch on that a little bit later, but as we build up to that, most of us in the U.S. have been affected by a portfolio of companies of theirs, whether early days with Yahoo for them, a communication platform like Slack, like it or hate it, and a ride-hailing app uh, Uber. But it was really, you know, a big deal in China market that put them in the stratosphere. You know, how did How did SoftBank get to be so big? Alibaba, the deal in China is really the, the key crux of that story. And that has always been the case and honestly becomes more so the case all the time, essentially because Alibaba keeps becoming more valuable, it seems like, every day. So when you think about how it got so big, it's important to think about, or a simple way to think about that is a sum of the parts analysis, which is also how Masasan often wants the market to think about SoftBank Group. So if you've ever listened to one of his earnings calls, pretty much every quarter, he walks us through the sum of the parts analysis, and then obviously points out that it is not reflected in the market cap. But quickly looking at some of those numbers, as of the last quarter end, Alibaba makes up only 60% of group value. So it really is still, you know, the bulk of the asset value and, you know, Masakon's get a jail-free card. Followed by that, the second biggest pillar is Corp. And then in terms of other major assets, we have Sprint and T-Mobile, which is around 5%. Arm at that time was around 9%, although that would be revised up slightly due to the sale. And then the Vision Fund is around 9%, and there's other investments which are around 5 So if you think about a lot of those like high-profile investments like Uber or Didi or Oyo, those are mostly made through the Vision Fund. That other bucket, we don't have a huge amount of clarity on what is included in there, aside from some of the obvious investments like Brightstar, Fortress. And that is obviously one issue that different investors have had with SoftBank, you know, clarity around some of those other direct investments where we don't have as clear disclosure. 
and I guess you raise an interesting point. You know, as a credit analyst, it can be tough to cover a company like this that's focused on growth and speculative growth at that. Generally, equity investors are those that look at opportunity. Credit investors just want to get their money back, which tends to get credit analysts thinking about uh, skeptic, you know, skeptically about what the future looks like and the threats to getting that money back. Can you speak a little bit about you know where that hat of the equity side and speak to how you make the case for the soft bank bulls? Absolutely, because a lot of the bulls do often believe in Masasan's vision and his ability to make savvy investments and to have a 200-year plan and to find the next Alibaba because as we've seen with the incredible growth in the value of Alibaba since SoftBank initially invested, like he did make a very, very savvy investment decision when he invested in Alibaba. So that's definitely part of it. And it's something I definitely think about when I consider those pillars of value. But to be totally frank about it, I often step back from trying to, you know, pick winners and losers and just think about the group of assets and then the pillars of value, which really are Alibaba, T-Mobile, and the domestic telco. Another thing that the bulls often lean to is SoftBank's financial framework as a source of support. So that is essentially three pillars. The first is that they will maintain a loan-to-value ratio under 25% and under 35% in periods of market stress. I take issue with the way they essentially calculate this definition, which we detail in our reports. And I also think one thing I've struggled with is that this is obviously contingent on equity market values largely. So in a period of market sell-off, like your key metric, the metric that determines how they, you know, gear the balance sheet gets worse, which I viewed as a negative. Another pillar is that they'll have cash at the hold code to cover two years of bond maturities. And then the last is to secure uh, sustainable distribution or uh, dividend income streams from streams from its portfolio companies. This is something I have also would like to see more of, to be frank about it. So of the major investments, the only one that pays a regular dividend is the domestic telco, SoftBank Corp. So aside from that, they are reliant on a change in dividend policy. So if Alibaba was to start paying dividends, for example, or a change in share buybacks or some way of getting cash out to the parent or asset sales, like we've seen a lot of so far in 2020. And that's an interesting point because, you know, if you look at SoftBank's portfolio, where so much of the, you know, your asset coverage is depending on, you know, you know, what the market valuation is for these companies and there can be a pro-cyclical component to it. You know, we've actually seen a read through that in, in other places in the market. And as we've seen over the last couple of years, as more and more speculative business models have come to the corporate credit markets, you know, companies like Uber, Carvana, WeWork, you know, and even at a certain point, Tesla, you know, companies that hadn't earned EBITDA yet were able to fund themselves in large part because of an equity cushion and a perception that there'd be value sufficient to pay off the obligations if the company wasn't able to sort of grow earnings. Um, you know, SoftBank's existence was a key part of that equity cushion in a lot of these stories. And we struggle to cover them from a typical or traditional credit lens because of the implications of a company like SoftBank. You know, you think it's fair to sort of see them as the, you know, the potential white knight or at least an opportunistic sponsor for these sort of speculative type of deals and helping to support their ability to indirectly come into the high yield market? I think there, there are two sides to that. There's uh, SoftBank as 
you know, increasing equity cushions or soft banks, seeing value in the future in some of these disruptive tech players. And then there's also SoftBank as White Knight. So on the first one, the extent to which they, they you know, have a bit of equity value, I think what we saw with WeWork is that that turned out to not be true. And essentially when the value of that asset wasn't picked in the eyes of the equity market, it did not look like a fair assessment. The valuations that Masasan in particular had seen in that asset earlier in earlier funding rounds. As White Knight though, that if SoftBank is involved, we do have some history of them obviously being willing to do that. And this is one thing I take issue with with SoftBank as credit investors because they have in their financial policy framework every quarter that there are no bailouts and all the subsidiary debt is non-recourse. So that's sort of only true until it's not in the sense that when they structured the WeWork bailout, that was a bailout for an asset that was in a stressed situation. They do guarantee one of their T-Mobile share term loans. And then there is obviously, you know, it was unclear to what extent they would step in and support Sprint. But in the Sprint T-Mobile US trial versus state IGs, there was some evidence that showed that even then Matsan would have been willing to support Sprint directly. So <laughs> it seems like they are willing to be that player at certain times. And that is something I'm less comfortable with than, you know, the extent to which they may bid up equity multiples because that is the way Masasan sees the world. It's on the rest of the financial markets to figure out if they agree with him or not. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I'd like to dig into a sort of another theme that we've seen with some of the portfolio companies. You know, certainly disruption underpins a lot of the names that Sun has chosen to invest in. And, and, you know, we've talked about WeWork quite a bit, uh, the shared workspace provider, Oyo, a hotelier uh, based in India, over here in the US, Compass, which is disrupting the real estate brokerage market. These companies are attacking fairly simple and excellent business models that you know sometimes it's hard to see where the disruption opportunity is going to come about and you know, i quote realogy which is a competitor for compass their ceo who said i definitely keep my eye on competitors who are doing more desperate things and are willing to lose money and don't seem to be on a path to make money and end quote do you have a sense of whether or not we all lack the vision here or is there something like we work brewing elsewhere in the portfolio that is a great question, and I will dodge it a little bit to be totally frank about it. Because obviously, when you know we think about different tech companies that have either run with a loss for certain years, but hugely disrupted industries, like we have tales of success and tales of failure. And the tales of success are today some of the biggest companies in the equity market. So, you know, obviously, even if you have one major success that can outweigh all the losses. And I think of that often as the way the venture capital fund runs. And really that's the best way to think about division fund one. And even Masasan has been honest that he doesn't expect every single vision fund company to be a success. He expects to have a few major successes. So as a credit analyst, you know, putting me back where I try to focus, it's there are all those different portfolio companies. Some I think will be successful. I think lots won't be. But would you lend money to that venture capital company fund? Do you lend money to this sort of risk reward trade-off? Does that appeal to you? And that is a debate that you need to have essentially because I think there is a market for that. I think some investors can and should, but it has to be the right price and the right terms. And then are you getting that price and that terms when you think about SoftBank? 
Well, and I think that yeah, the other variable too is, you know, much as we've seen in other tech companies, investment SoftBank is as much about the person, Son in this case, um, as it is about the strategies. Certainly there's some genius in his track record, that's without doubt. But is he truly a rainmaker? Is he going rogue? <laughs> that is, you know, you asked earlier about the SoftBank bulls and the SoftBank bulls often do think he is a rainmaker. So there are people out there who take that view strongly. Having covered the company in recent years, I one thing I've struggled with is the extent to which some of the theses have changed. So, you know, I talked about sort of the parameters from what makes this investment attractive. And like, I think they exist, but part of that is clarity on mission and of, you know, what they're looking for in investments, how they're structuring them how they risk manage, for example. But there's been a lot of change in the how he approaches investment. So, you know, most recently, obviously, we've had this pivot into the options market, which feels very different to what we've seen Masasan focus on historically with regards to the Vision Fund 1. And then even when we think about the Vision Fund, how he thought about that, he often talked about very important tech themes like IoT or AI, but it was difficult to wrap around exactly what angle he wanted to play those and it sort of seemed like it could dabble in different things. And, you know, we've also seen him have interest, for example, in Intelsat. He's invested in OneWeb. So he also has done things which are more infrastructure heavy still or have interest in that. Mary, you mentioned the options. Uh, there's been rumors that he's, uh, SoftBank and Sun have been sort of the so-called NASDAQ whale, where both the company and Sun personally have been making multi-billion dollar option purchases, helping to bid up the overall tech market. Certainly it's a volatile or, or high risk investment strategy. Can you talk about that and, and what the implications are for creditors? Yeah, and obviously we've got a number of questions on this in, in recent weeks from different clients trying to make sense of you know what's going on because I think what is, this does to me look like SoftBank in the sense that it has historically favored both complex and potentially high-risk investment strategies. So this looks like it could be SoftBank. I expect that they are taking positions. We also know when they announced the asset management subsidiary that Masasan said that they were going to use some derivative investment. So it's not totally uncommunicated. What's hard about it is the communication. So when they announced the asset management arm, that was at the last quarter results, but then the 13F filing showed that at the end of that quarter, they already owned almost 4 billion tech stocks. So they already had started doing the investment before they made the announcement. And it's still not clear really what size and scale and shape this investment management arm has taken. So the size and the context of the group is totally manageable. It's more issues around communication and lack of clarity on exactly what will make up those investments. And also the fact that there has been some, the way management has put it, is essentially this is a way for SoftBank to manage its excess cash. You know, I mentioned these asset sales that they've been undertaking earlier, and that is something we would likely view as a negative because this is obviously not a conventional or conservative way to manage a cash balance. And uh, that's tricky. And, and, and the size of these positions, you know, force investors to sort of pick a side, right? You either sort of believe in this or you, you don't believe in it. You know, there's some discussion that Song could go really big and, and do a leverage buyout here. You know, what are your thoughts about the feasibility of finding capital to take out what is now, you know, generally translated into dollars, about $100 billion of market cap that's not in Song's hands? So I think the important thing here is creditors cannot rule this risk out. Like, you definitely don't take the view that it's just so big, it is unlikely. I mean, that 
is not something that will get in Masasan's way. This is a rumor that has dogged SoftBank for years, so we know they've thought about it, and they haven't gone down that road, but it's not the first time. And then bear in mind that, yes, there is this $14 trillion market cap that's over you know, $130 billion, but Son owns a large portion of that. There's a large portion of those shares actually held in Treasury right now because SoftBank is aggressively buying back its stock. So if you exclude those, the market cap's only more like $90 billion. And then, like I mentioned earlier, you have this $190 billion Alibaba stake, which is totally unencumbered right now. There's no margin loans on the Baba stake currently. And they're accruing this cash pile from all these recent asset sales. So they've liquidated some T-Mobile assets. They've obviously just announced the ARM deal. And then they have the remaining T-Mobile options they're selling to DT. So they have a lot of cash coming in. The map of how this comes together is totally imaginable. I mean, it, it, it could happen. And because it is this sort of potential for downside, you need to bear that in mind. So most of the euro and dollar bonds have COC protection, but unsurprisingly, Masasan is a permitted holder on those notes. And it's also interesting because the Alibaba stake is actually carved out of the COC language, which specifies sale of all and substantially all assets. And I've actually never seen that before. So I've never seen a carve out or, you know, language that essentially removes some asset from that all or substantially all asset sale COC language. Well, I think it makes it tricky for creditors, of course, as they sort of aware of a tail risk is out there. And then when you have a nuance, like a covenant that specifically contemplates raising the stakes of what that tutorials could be, it forces a tough decisions on creditors. We've obviously touched on a number of things that are important about the credit. But what else uh, do you hear or discuss with clients about SoftBank? It's often the questions are about what's topical. So recently about the options market, about the take private rumors, I'd say those are common. There's a lot of people who like to debate RV. You know, we've had some of the back and forth in this conversation. Like the, there is a side for the bulls and the bears in SoftBank. Absolutely. Like I think that it's, you know, really an important debate to have about how we think about this credit in the market. And then finally, the one thing we didn't touch on is after those senior unsecured Hold Coban, you have some perps, which are more like corporate hybrids. And I do get a decent number of questions on those perps. Nice. Do you like them? Not currently, no. That's fair enough. Well, th- thanks, Mary, for, for the discussion on SoftBank. As you noted, I'm sure every conversation with clients inevitably ends up with a, what will they do? So I appreciate you taking the time to share those thoughts with our listeners. Great to be here. Yeah, and I'm always happy to talk about SoftBank. There's always a lot to say. Yeah, this, uh, it's got strong implications for not just the credit, but the market overall. And thank you, listeners. As always, you can find our research on our website, creditsites.com. Or if you are not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or produced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites 